<laughs> we were gonna call, but Eddie wanted to make it a surprise. Yeah. You surprised? <laughs> surprised, Eddie? <laughs> if I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. <laughs> we have plenty of room. <laughs> plenty of towels. <laughs> Plenty oh. of everything. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're pretty well set up there in the RV. You know, it's a little tight, but we didn't come to impose. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of room. Now, I hope you, you enjoyed that scene from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And maybe you have a cousin, Eddie, in your life, that surprise guest who just turns up on your doorstep. Or maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, and perhaps that's because you're someone else's cousin, Eddie. This Advent, we're going to look at surprise guests, a few surprise guests by hanging out at Jesus' home over the next few weeks, and the good news is that we're all invited. We've all received our invite in the mail, and we are stoked, we're excited. Our Christmas host is Jesus Christ himself, and so we know that we're going to enjoy some of the best food and hospitality, food that's never going to run out. After all, this is the guy who, with a prayer, turned a couple of loaves and fish into a feast for 4,000 people. So imagine what he can do with the turkey and the trimmings. So when we got the invite in the mail, we... We're so excited, so excited that we RSVP'd straight away. We, we arrive at his house. Jesus greets us at the door and warmly welcomes us in. He shows us where we are going to sleep, and we, we take our luggage upstairs. We unpack, and now we're sat in his living room with him. He's asking us kind and insightful questions, and he's sharing uh, rather funny anecdotes like about the time that he found his income tax in the mouth of a fish. And we're enjoying having all of his attention. It feels good. We have a hot chocolate in our hand and the oversized fireplace is crackling and roaring and casting a warm orange glow over the whole room. And the fact that there's a snowstorm outside only adds to the warmth of the situation. There's no way that we could be any more comfortable or content than somebody knocks at the door. We're surprised. We thought that we were the only ones invited, but as we look at Jesus, we, we see that he's not surprised. Uh, in fact, a new tray of hot chocolate is already prepared as he opens the door. And in stumbles a family. You, you can tell that the parents have just been yelling at each other. And as Jesus welcomes them, they push past him, obviously so upset with each other that they aren't aware of how rude they are being. And the three kids trudge in after the parents looking a little lost and a little upset. But when they see Jesus, their faces brighten up. These are the Fowlers, and they are filing for divorce. And it's not long until an argument starts up between Mr. and Mrs. Fowler. Mr. Fowler storms out saying, I'll see you in the new year with my lawyer. And you just know that he's not returning. And so we sit there with Mrs. Fowler, Jesus, and the kids, and there's a little bit of an awkward silence. But then as Mrs. Fowler starts sharing her story, 
um, a word picture comes into your mind and you can't shake it. You have this image in your mind of them struggling with life. Nothing is easy. They are floundering. And so you have this name in your mind, the Fowlers, the Floundering Family. But under Jesus' loving care, a sort of a peace descends on the room once more, though the occasional sniffle or sob can be heard over the crackle of the fire. We will revisit this imaginary scenario a little bit later and scenarios like it through the Advent season. But for now, let's turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 1. We left Jesus last week in his ministry base at Capernaum, probably Simon Peter's house, and he's now traveled a fair distance to the region of the Jordan River, north of Jericho. He's now officially on his journey to, to Jerusalem, the journey that will end in him dying on a Roman cross like a common criminal. And near the Jordan River, Crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. And then once again, he's accosted by a mobile attack team of Pharisees who throw him a curveball. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And of course, they're hoping to catch him out. They are right in the middle of Herod Antipas's territory. This is a guy who mur murdered John the Baptist because John had the gall to condemn the fact that he married his brother's wife, Herodias. And so the very fact that these Pharisees are asking Jesus the thing that led to John's imprisonment and execution, that all means that this is a very loaded question. Now, according to Statistics, Can uh, Statistic Ca Statistics Canada, about 38% of all marriages taking place in 2004, which is the year Wendy and I got married, will have ended in divorce by 2035. And what that means is that we are living in a broken world, a world that Romans 8 tells us is groaning and waiting to be redeemed. And in a broken world, things break, things like marriage. And the Pharisees know this, and Jesus knows this. Divorce wasn't a new concept even then. And so Jesus answers the Pharisees' question with a question of his own in verse 3 of chapter 10. He says, what did Moses command you? And they answer him, Moses permitted the man to write a certificate of divorce and sent her away. And they're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her and sends her away. And then the passage goes on and says that if she marries again and the second husband writes her a certificate of divorce, then she can't be married, married once again to the first man. And this was probably to prevent her being passed around like a football, being taken advantage of for her dowry, that money that, that, uh, that she had in that relationship. The long and the short is that she'd, she'd been through enough. Let's not add to her pain, hence this law. But the Pharisees were split over what the word indecent meant, 
what was an indecent act that could lead to divorce. Now, the school of Shammai said that you could only divorce for marital unfaithfulness, whereas the school of Hillel said, actually, no, if you're not happy with your wife for any reason, you can leave her. And so the messy reality of Moses' time and of Jesus' time and of our time is that divorce happens, that things fall apart. We live in a broken world in which things break. And many of us know and have experienced this firsthand. And then Jesus carries on in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hardened that Moses wrote you this law. And what that means is that this law was, was God's concession to humanity's sin. And the reasoning goes something like this. Well, people have divorced and they and they are going to divorce, and so I, God, will create some boundaries to limit the fallout and to protect those involved. In some ways, it's similar thinking to someone who says drug addicts are going to take drugs. They are going to shoot up. I don't condone it. I don't agree with it, but they're not going to stop, and many of them are broken people. So let me limit the fallout by creating a safe and clean place where the addicts can take their drugs. It's a concession without condoning the practice. And this messy reality was not what God wanted, as Jesus shows us in verse 6. He originally had a perfect plan, which was this. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This was God's, God's perfect plan, God's uh, plan for marriage with a man and a woman was embedded right from the start. And still today, in verse 7, we see that we're still living out this plan through the man leaving his original family unit where his primary identity was that of a son and creating a new family unit where he trades his identity card of a son for a new, new identity card, that of a husband. And this new unit is sealed by the sexual act being united to his wife, the union of these two separate lives symbolized by the act of sex. In verse 8, and in verse 8, Jesus says, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says it again, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's really trying to drive this home because this was God's perfect plan. A man and a woman pledging their lifelong loyalty to each other in the sacred covenant of marriage. It's, and why it's so special is that this is a reflection of the relationship that exists between the members of the Holy Trinity. And so for Jesus, there was no such thing as casual sex. It was sacred. It was holy. It reflected him. And so the Lord wanted his world populated by couples, who were bound together in covenant. But this is not what happened. God's perfect plan was stained and spoiled by sin that has led us to this messy reality in which we find ourselves today. And so it's into this context of this messy reality that Jesus shares his marriage mandate in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This was the plan Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so Jesus is saying to the pharisaical school of Hillel, no, you cannot 
divorce someone because she doesn't please you or because she burnt your breakfast or because there's a younger, newer model. There's a higher law to which you are held, the law of creation, God's perfect plan. Marriage is sacred. And this marriage mandate, what God has joined together, let no one separate, is being lived out in a broken world. And we know that. And maybe you're sat there thinking, well, no one understands what I've had to go through. I could never go back to that marriage, but I feel like I failed. I feel like I have a sign over my head which tells everyone what I've done. No one understands. No one knows. But the good news is that Jesus knows. Think about it. He was born into a household with a moral mark, with a moral question mark over it. You see, everyone knew that Mary was his mum and his dad was, well, as far as the world was concerned, a man called Joseph. And in society's eyes, Jesus was born outside of wedlock and that might not seem, seem such a big deal today. But in those days, in a Jewish community, that was a huge deal. And it was part of Jesus' eternal plan that he would be born into a situation that was the basis of gossip and suspicion and the rumor mill. So even though he was morally perfect, Jesus was born with society's question mark over his head, and this was his choice. While, while the Pharisees are debating when and how it's okay to divorce, Jesus is saying, you shouldn't do it. And Jesus' words in verse 9 are tough. They are countercultural. Jesus is raising the bar. See, no one at that time was saying anything like this. They're, they're, they lowered the bar, but he's raising it. And his disciples know this. And so when they, when they get back to the safety of the house, they ask him about this. What do you mean by that, Lord? And he answers them, anyone who divorces his spouse whether husband or wife, and remarries, commits adultery against their former spouse. Now, I've not had the time today to give a more detailed look at divorce. There are a number of passages that I've not looked at, such as Matthew 19, where Matthew sheds more light on our Mark 10 scripture today. And also 1 Corinthians 7 is a good chapter to look at to really get some helpful practical advice about marriage and relationships and divorce. And so feel free to look into these at home or in your grow groups. But what I want to leave us leave us here, here today is with this simple truth of Mark 10, that God had a perfect plan, but humans messed up this plan. And, but God meets us in our messy reality. And in the midst of this messy reality, Jesus still proclaims his marriage mandate that what God has joined, let no one separate. And this leads us finally to Jesus's kind command. Now, I don't think it's, it's really any accident that Jesus' teaching on divorce is sandwiched between two passages about children. You see, chapter 9 ends with Jesus' warning about not causing any little one to stumble. And now, after his words on divorce, when his disciples were turning away children from the busy rabbi, Jesus says in verse 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Now, remember from last week that these little ones are the ones without any rights, the lowest in the society at the time. And so if you feel that you're a helpless child who has experienced a broken home, let me say this to you. Jesus welcomes you in. He accepts you in. He wants to take you in his arms, and he wants to bless you. And if you are the parent of children who have been affected by a broken home, let me say this to you, that Jesus loves your children, even though they may feel, and the world may say that he's, he's too busy for them, even though his own followers, his own representatives may send, them, may send out the message that he doesn't have time for them. All he wants to do is to take them in his arms, place his hands on them, and bless them, as verse 16 shows us. So my encouragement for you is not to give up praying for them. Don't stop leading them to him. Don't let the regret of your past stop you from bringing them to him and entrusting them into his hands because you are still their parent. You are still their mum, their dad. And Jesus still has this mandate over your life to not hinder them from coming to him. So even if you maybe feel that you've failed as a mum or dad, know this, that you're still a disciple of Jesus, and the job of a disciple is to lead the little ones to God. That's what verse 14 tells us. So as a parent and as a disciple, your job is not yet over. In his grace and his mercy, God still has a task for you. Into the broken home, God moves in. The author of Acts, Luke the doctor, sums up David's life like this in Acts 13, verse 22. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to. But hold on, Luke, that's not all of David's life. What, there's more. What about maybe Bathsheba? What about marital unfaithfulness? What about Uriah that he murdered in premeditated cold blood? Now imagine if we had someone sat in our pews right now and we knew this about them, that they'd had an affair and they'd conducted uh, an elaborate, premeditated murderous scheme to hide it. What would you be thinking right now? What would I be thinking right now about that individual? And yet Luke saw fit, knowing all he knew of David's life, to sum up this man's entire life in this way that he was a man after God's own heart. And so what does this say to you if you are from a broken home? Simply this, that you can be a divorcee and still be a man or a woman after God's own heart. That this fact that you are divorced is not the most important thing about you. If Luke's summary of David's life is any indicator your divorce does not have to be the thing that history remembers you for. And a major part of the healing process of repentance is that God can use the lessons we learnt through our failure for his glory and for the good of, of others. That's what Psalm 51 verse 13 is all about. It says, Then I will teach trans or it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. 
And what Psalm 51 says is that God can create a pure heart in us again, that God can restore our joy again, and then God can use what we've experienced to help others. That's what verse 13 says. So whether, whether you've caused or been a victim of the sin of divorce, or whether you have maybe another sin that so easily entangles you, know that there is hope because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our own decisions and sins have caused us to mess up God's perfect plan, but then God in his love, sent his perfect son, Jesus, right smack into the middle of our messy reality. He was born under a question mark, but he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death and he rose in triumph so that we could be welcomed by God's kind command to come to him. This is the gospel that changed King David's life. And this is the same gospel that brings us hope today, whatever our past, whatever our history Let me say this to you. If you're maybe contemplating divorce, Jesus wants to move into your broken situation and bring healing. And if you are divorced and this breakdown in relationship was your fault, then God offers you forgiveness. He offers you a new start. This is the message of the cross where he says, your lawless deeds I will remember no more. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And if you feel that you are the victim, then God offers you hope and healing of a new tomorrow. He says this, by my wounds you are healed. And this is the beauty of the cross. Hanging on that cross, Jesus suffered the sin and the hurt of both parties involved in the divorce. The shame and the sin of the blameworthy and the hurt and the pain and the, and the regret of the victim. He became one who was, who was divorced on your, your behalf, yet without sin. He took it upon himself, and he dealt with it once and for all. One writer says that we act as if someone who is, who is divorced has committed the unpardonable sin. But we're all sinners saved by grace. It just happens that their sin is divorce. So, like, like with any other sin, when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we leave our encounter with him forgiven and free and unblemished, without spot and or stain, as if it never happened. As if it never happened. And so we're left with Mrs. Fowler and her kids in Jesus' living room, Jesus' first guests this Christmas season, this floundering family, they know firsthand that life is complicated. They know that a broken home is complicated. They know that God had a perfect plan and we keep messing it up. But they also know that God enters into our messy reality by meeting us where we're at, firstly through the damage-limiting laws of Moses, but more importantly through the person and death of Jesus Christ. They know that even in the midst of our moral mess, Jesus reinforces the marriage mandate and reminds us of his perfect plan. 
And as Jesus welcomes this floundering family into his home, they are reassured by his kind command to let the little children come to him. And even as Mrs. Fowler doubts that anything can come of her marriage, she's comforted as she sees her kids on Jesus' knee, and she resolves to keep on letting them come to him in any way she possibly can. This is the thrill of hope. The weary world world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Into our broken world, Jesus came as a baby, and into the broken home, God moves in. This is the Christmas message.